sermon, sort of. In some ways, I'm doing just that. We're preaching a, another person's sermon. And in other ways, we're also exploring the idea of why is this sermon here? What is the context? What's the response? There's sort of a story of preaching the sermon. So really sort of two objectives. And because there's two objectives, today's message is going to be twice as long. And so... I, She'll actually be here for three hours instead of just the regular hour and a half. Um, no, I'm going to try not to. Sorry, Lee, you can. You can <laughs> I saw Paul just, just lean on Regina's shoulder there. You don't have to get too, too um, comfortable, okay? Um, that, that being said, you know, it's almost 30 verses here, and certainly I'm not going to be able to say everything that could be said. All right, I'm not going to attempt to do that, uh, nor I'm going to claim that I am doing that. There's a lot more that could be said. And, and a great deal of what we are trying to do as a church as we're reading through the Bible, just even beyond Sunday morning as a church, is we would hope that you would even walk in here. We try to communicate the text in advance. You'll just be so helped if you even read the passage before you come. That way you can begin to, to ask questions and just consider, just make different observations yourself. And so I want to encourage you from week to week to do that if possible, and also um, to continue on studying after, after this week in community groups, they'll be helpful as well. So it is a longer text, but um, if we're going to preach on it, we certainly need to read it. And so I'm going to read the text, I'll pray for us, and then we will dive in. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And they will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set on his descendants, on his throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up And of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word and come to it just as it is, eternal and true, Lord, we pray that you would take this word And you would do what it has done throughout the ages, that it would shape and it would form us as your people, that it would cut through to our very hearts, that it would pierce us, Lord. Lord, I pray that through this word that your son would be exalted in this place. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know if you've ever listened to a sermon that has just been incredibly meaningful. I don't know if you've had that experience. I know not every sermon is. I would hope that every sermon is. But oftentimes, the truth is, we walk away thinking, what did he just say? But there is an occasion where we find ourselves sitting under the proclamation of God's word. It pierces our heart, and we are left changed. We left change, and we remember that. I can remember in junior high, there was a preacher by the name of Dwight Knight who he preached a conference, and I can remember specifically where I was sitting when I was in junior high listening to him exposit Romans 7. And it was the first time that I sat under the preaching of the word that I thought to myself, this is unbelievable. This can't be true. Are you kidding me? Just totally moved. I even had a little cassette tape that even throughout college, I would return on road trips to this cassette tape time and time again. It was a phenomenal sermon. I remember in college as a junior, discovering DesiringGod.org and uh, listening to John Piper preach on Isaiah 58, sitting in my dorm room and understanding that the life that God has called us sort of for the first time is a life that cares for the poor, the the broken and the marginalized. It it was really a a life-altering, sort of changing message. I can remember listening to this sermon preached, I think it's called Gospel by Numbers. It was preached by a man named Legan Duncan out of Numbers chapter 5. And uh, what he did was in the most remarkable way showed us in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, um, essentially Jesus Christ and our need for him. And it was just, it gave me really a longing and a deep desire to understand the Old Testament. Really remarkable 
um, message. This morning, what we have before us, as I said previously, is a sermon. But it's not just any regular old sermon. This is the first sermon that was preached at the inauguration of the church. This was a remarkable, and it is to this day, a remarkable sermon. As we walk through the book of Acts, what we will see over and over and over again is we will see one sermon, one speech, one message after another. There is some 19 different sermons throughout the book of Acts. Peter is responsible for preaching eight of those. Stephen and James each preach one of those. And then Paul preaches the rest, the other nine. So if you were to add up all of the sermons or the speeches throughout the book of Acts, some 25%, a quarter of the book is dedicated, is devoted to the proclamation of God's word. And so we'll see this throughout the study. We'll see one sermon after another, and this is the first of many to come. As we look at this, there is sort of a big idea. I want to just present to you, I'm going to give you a long version of the big idea and then a shortened version, okay? The long version, what is it that we're going to discover this morning as we look at these words? We'll see that God keeps his promises by pouring out his spirit on weak, sinful people and then uses them to carry out the mission of the church. That's what the big idea is. That's what we'll see this morning. Another way to sort of condense that or even summarize that is that this morning, we will be invited to join God and his people on what he is doing throughout eternity. And this invitation, to be clear, as Dave was saying earlier, this invitation that we will see this morning is for people who are broken, who are needy, who are exhausted, who are full of shame and guilt, people who are in need of a savior. This invitation is for people just like you and people just like me, okay? So as we look at this sermon, we'll see sort of three different things. And the first thing is, I'm gonna give you the sort of the outline of the message and I'll explain what it means afterwards. The outline is point number one, what does this mean? Point number two, how do we know this is what this means. And then point number three, what do we do about this? Point number one, what does this mean? We see this in verses 14 to 21. This is the question that Peter, this is why Peter is preaching the message. He stands before all these Jews that have been gathered that had just witnessed this miraculous outpouring of the Spirit, tongues of fire, landing on people's shoulders, them speaking in a language that they didn't know, but they can understand this miraculous event. At the end of our previous passage, they are asking themselves this very question. What does this mean? What have we just seen? Some have drawn the conclusion that they're drunk, that they're just filled with wine and they're drunk. Others are not so sure that that's the case. The reason why Peter is, pre is preaching this message is because he's answering that question that was raised in verse 12. What does this mean? What had they just witnessed? And his answer to that question is sort of threefold. What does it mean? The first thing that it means is that prophecy, what you have just witnessed, means prophecy has been fulfilled. 
that God is true to his promises. That which was promised by God in the Old Testament and confirmed by God through the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, that is what this means. God's faithful and true to his promises. Look at verse 16. Some of you may have, uh, maybe you have a King James Version, and the King James Version of the beginning of verse 16 says it a little different. My ESV says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What it says in the King James Version is this is that which was uttered through them, some version of that. This is that. A number of years ago, I took a trip to uh, a number of students. I'm not sure how long ago this was. It was a while ago to the uh, civil rights tour. And so we went to Montgomery, Alabama. And one of the, my favorite places, one of my favorite stops on the tour was at Dr. Martin Luther King's church, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. It was a church that he pastored from 1954 till 1959 before he took sort of his ministry to Atlanta. And during that time, it was a real strategic time because it was when the Montgomery bus boycotts were started. And so I think that started in 1955. So he was sort of, that's kind of what put him as the, the prominent leader of the civil rights movement. And this church, is a historic monument. It's a very significant place. And so as, as these students and as we were leading up to the church, the parsonage sits right across the, tree, the street. It's, a, it's one that has been preserved and restored. And it's really a remarkable place. And you, you kind of read up before and you see pictures of what it looks like and, and what it looked like in his day and what it looks like now. And it's really a remarkable thing. I can remember standing behind the pulpit that is in Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And it's just this unbelievable experience. Like Dr. King stood here behind this pulpit. This is remarkable. And essentially, as we're standing there thinking about all the things that we knew and that we learned. What we're saying is that we're standing behind that pulpit is this is that. Where we're at right now is that which we have learned and heard and, and thought all about. And that's essentially what Peter is saying right in this moment. He's saying this, where we are now is that. That which we've heard. It's this What's happening, what you have just witnessed, the pouring out of the Spirit, is that which was promised by John the Baptist when he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying, what you just witnessed is that. It's also what Jesus promised, John 14, 15, and 6. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This is what he says in, in Acts 1, 4, wait for the promise of the Father. In Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What Peter's saying is this, what you just saw, is that. It's also what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And that's what he goes into. He, he reaches back into the prophet Joel. And he, 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 it's a very strategic passage that he points out because it is the prophet Joel that they would be reading during this time of Pentecost. And Peter points to that scripture to make sense ultimately of what they're experiencing. People are asking questions, wondering what is it that we are experiencing right now and what does Peter do? He points them to scripture and he says, what you're experiencing right now, this is that which was spoken about long ago by the prophet Joel. Notice and appreciate Peter's approach and his pattern here. He, he pointed them to the scriptures and he explained them. He showed them 
how to make sense based on what God's word said, how to make sense of their reality based, his starting point was God's word. And this is what good apostolic preaching tends to do, tries to do, make sense of our reality, point us ultimately in the direction of Christ through the scriptures. This is precisely what he does. He points them to the scriptures. Notice what it says in verse 14. He, he, he addresses them. This word address, he stood up and he addressed them. This is the exact same word that is used in verse four to describe the events, the utterances. They began to speak as the spirit gave them utterance. Gave them utterance, Peter addressing them. It's the exact same word. The difference is he's speaking to them in a language that they can understand. But what isn't different is that, that what is coming out of his mouth is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. His carefully crafted words and well-argued speech is as much a Spirit-inspired utterance as the speaking of tongues in other language. This is the apostolic approach to ministry. Notice what he's doing. An amazing experience, followed up by an explanation via word. Word and deed. This is how Jesus conducted his ministry, and his ministry continues in his people through the power of his spirit. Powerful word, powerful deed. His word explains what, they're, what is happening. Now, it's interesting when you think about this. This is one of the reflections I've just made as I've been thinking about this text. Oftentimes when we think about, when I think about the acts of the apostles or the acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts of the risen Christ, what we discover the early church doing in the book and throughout the book of Acts and how it is the, the activity, it's fueled by the Holy Spirit. My mind instantly goes to some of the miraculous things like we just saw earlier in chapter two, the pouring out of the spirit, the speaking of tongues, what we'll see in chapter three when they heal the lame man who's outside the temple, this man who's, who is unable to walk, he is healed and now he goes about rejoicing in the Lord or, or, or amazing things like uh, Paul and Silas and the earthquake letting them out of jail and the amazing conversions. We think about Acts, my mind instantly goes to how the spirit works in these miraculous ways throughout the book of Acts. Acts. But it's important for us to remember, and we'll be challenged as we study that, how we think about the Holy Spirit. It'll be something that we'll have to talk about, and, and we'll be challenged in how we think about throughout this study. But one of the things that jumps out at me is that, that just as much as the Holy Spirit is responsible for the healing of the lame man outside of the temple, he's also responsible for the proclamation of God's word and the results that happen after. The Spirit works when the word is proclaimed. 25% of the book is dedicated to making that point, all right? It's one that we should not lose. What else does it mean? It means that Pentecost, not just that scripture has been fulfilled, but that there's the beginning of a new era. What they had witnessed in the pouring out of the spirit of God on the people of God is an indication that they are beginning a new era. It's described here as, as he cites Joel in verse 17 as the last days. This is part of God's final act of redemption. The apostles would have read the Old Testament text like this and others like it, and they would have seen themselves in these last days. 
This time is a time that they were in, and it's a time that we are in. It's, it's talked about here in Joel. It's the, with the Spirit being poured out on God's people. People are awaiting between when the Spirit comes to the, the, the very end, the day of our Lord, when He returns. This is the time that we find ourselves in right now. This is what, what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 as the end of the ages, or also in 2 Timothy 3 and 1 as the last days. The, a new era is here, and it's an era where the risen Christ continues his ministry through his people, empowered by his spirit. It's the era that we find ourselves in right now. What else does it mean? It also means that we can all know God, and we can make him known. What, what is it that we just saw happen? Let me tell you what it is that we just saw happen. It's good news because it means you can know God, and you can make him known. The coming of the Holy Spirit means that we as God's people can fully know him and freely make him known. That's the point of what Peter is saying when he quotes this Old Testament prophecy of Joel. Look at verse 17. Notice the expression he says that the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. What does he mean? Is that sort of an a indication that there's a universal, everybody has, has, um, is now possesses God's Spirit? Is that what it means? Well, I don't think it means that exactly because if you notice, he says the, the phrases that follow on your sons and daughters, the pronouns, your young men and old men, my male and female servants, the pronouns indicate that the people in question are specifically God's people, that the gift of the Spirit is for true, authentic servants of God. And all of these genuine servants of God will share direct access to the very Spirit of God. And while there will be some who are appointed specific roles like, like evangelist or a pastor, every single believer will be called to proclaim the excellencies of God. Now, in Numbers chapter 11, if you're familiar with the story, Moses was tired of leading, and so they appointed elders who were filled with the Spirit and who prophesied. And, and many of the people were disturbed about this change, and they complained to Moses, and Moses responds in verse 29 in a most unusual way. He says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would pour out his Spirit on all of you. That's how I wish it was. But it's not. There's only some people who have that type of access. There's only some people, Old Testament, who have that type of calling on their life, that they have that access to God and the ability to proclaim him as their mouthpiece. Only some offices, only some people can serve that. But I would prefer that all of us have that access and that responsibility, quite frankly. That's what Moses is saying. And what Peter is saying is what Moses wanted this is that. We all can know God fully. And we all have the responsibility to make him known freely. We all have access. Now notice as we read through this passage, and I'm gonna maybe move on to the next point because of the sake of time, but as we read through the passage, you notice God's sovereignty and our responsibility so intermingled. You'll notice it throughout the passage. These are common, ordinary people, men and women. And God's mission, the proclamation of his gospel, is the responsibility of all of those 
common, messy, unprofessional people. You and me, it's our job. As you continue on throughout this, you'll begin to see, you know, there's this, he, he highlights the, the um, holiness of God in the next passages there in, in um, 19 to 20, um, these different things, events that will happen. Um, but he also highlights the universal need that we all share, that every single one of us needs to call on the name of Jesus for salvation. So what he's saying essentially is this is what it means. What it means is scripture's been fulfilled. God's faithful to his promises. The new era, the era of the spirit is here. And he's also saying that you and I can freely know God and freely make him known. Now, the next question is, that's, those are some significant claims, okay? Can we just stop and recognize that he's not, this is a big deal, okay? This is a serious event that just happened, and it's, it means some pretty significant stuff. So the next question in his argumentation that he's trying to answer is, how do you know? He's trying to provide proof. What I just said was super significant. How can you be certain? It's a word that he comes up in this, in this. He's saying this so they can be certain of this. Well, the, the answer to this question, how can they be certain? Go back to the illustration, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. How can I be certain that the pulpit I'm standing behind when I stand up on that stage is Dr. Martin Luther King's pulpit when he preached at that church? How can I be certain when I go into the parsonage that, that the way the kitchen was set up is, is exactly how it was set up there? How can I be certain that the books on the shelves in his library are the books that he looked at, that he referenced, that he resourced? How can I be certain? You would, you would want some proof. Well, we would find proof in things like, well, here's the, here's the people who tried to preserve it. Uh, here's pictures that you could look at when he was in his study, when he was standing behind his pulpit. You would provide evidence to say that this really is that. And that's essentially what Peter is doing. How can you be certain? Well, the answer, how can we be certain? He fa if you just fast forward, how can we really know? To verse 33, he gets to the end, and this is sort of just give it away. What he says is, being therefore exalted, in verse 33, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. How can you be certain? He builds an argument, and where he ends the argument is this. How can we be certain that this is that? Because Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. That's what he's saying. But before he gets there, he unpacks an entire theology of Jesus. And it's really quite remarkable. He, he shares with them what they need to know about Jesus so that they can be saved. First thing he says in verse 22 is that he, he points us to the person of Jesus. He says, Jesus was a man. You saw him. You know him. You know he's from Nazareth. You got to see the extraordinary things that he did. He points to his flesh. Says, you know this man. Signs and wonders that he performed. They validated the claims that he made about himself. And as we look at his life, we get a picture of what life looks like and will look like under the reign of King Jesus. There will be no room for sickness. There'll be no room for pain. There'll be no fear of uncertainty, no death. King Jesus will reverse the curse and all things will be made as new. He points them to the person in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. You saw him. 
You want proof? You got it? Jesus, he was a man. You saw what he did. Then he points to the plan because if they were thinking to themselves, first century Jew, yeah, I know that Jesus. The next thought that would have jumped in their mind was, he was killed on a cross. How can that be any kind of proof when he suffered a humiliating death? If he was the Messiah, why did that happen? Messiahs win. So he doesn't really give them room to ask that question because he knows that's what they're thinking. So what he points to next is he shows how the death of Christ was a part of the plan of God from the very beginning. He shows it in verse 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. His death on the cross was a part of God's plan. And while God planned it, Sinful men carried it out. Again, divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Both of them emphasized in the text. And ultimately what he's saying is, just like sinful men killed him on the cross, the truth is, what he's saying to us today is, the same thing's true. Just like their sin put Jesus on the cross, the same could be said about you and me. We all have responsibility for what happened to Jesus. And the responsibility that we bear is the result of our sin. Every single one of us. And what it may seem when you read this speech, now it's, it's important to remember that this is likely not, and we see it later on that he says many more things to them. This is likely not the entirety of his sermon. This is likely a summary that Luke captured from his sermon. But as you read through it, you'll notice that, man, Peter is being really direct. <laughs> this Jesus, this Jesus who you crucified, this Jesus. And you may think to yourself, whoa, <laughs> like, settle down, Peter, you know? You want to win them to you, not offend them away from you. But, he, but Peter makes no bones about it. And neither should we. The result, the result of our sin, Jesus died for it. And because of it, we all have our hands bloody, so to speak. And Peter points it out and doesn't want to give them an excuse. Next thing he points out, he does this in verses 24 to 32, is the power. Verse 24, God raised him up. Yes, Jesus was killed on a cross according to God's definite plan, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. But it's not the end of the story. God raised him up. Death could not hold him. Sin, your sin, as significant and meaningful as it is, cannot stop him from loving you. This is the good news of the gospel. And Peter goes on to show that this was predicted from long ago. He, he uses Psalm 16, he quotes it, to show that Jesus is the Christ, the one promise, and his resurrection validates, it's the greatest miracle of all of his life, his claims to be who he was as the Messiah. And David, as he pulls out this Psalm, Psalm 16 of David, was a prototype, a great king in history, but he was really just pointing to an even greater king. That's his point. One who would be greater than him, who would, who would offer hope that we could always be with God, that death would be defeated, and he would, we would be able through him to know the fullness of joy in his presence. As great of a king as David was, Jesus will be better. 
And you want proof? Verse 29, go look at their tombs. Jesus' tomb is empty. The resurrection, living proof. Then he goes on in verse 32 to show that there are eyewitnesses accounts. Eyewitness accounts are significant throughout the, the New Testament. You don't believe me, go ask this person. They saw, they encountered the risen Christ. This is significant. And then finally, he turns from the power of the resurrection to the reality of the ascension of the king. Peter connects Pentecost to the ascension like we saw in verse 33. He then quotes Psalm 110, shows us that somehow David had the ability to foresee this one who would come, who would be greater than him. Psalm 10 was a, well, 110 was a favorite psalm of the early church because they recognized this, that they looked forward to one who, who he would call Lord, who was greater than, this was David's anticipation that there would be somebody he would refer to as my Lord. This is also a psalm that Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 44, to silence his opponents, he pointed to himself as the fulfillment of Psalm 110, the greater one whom David called Lord. He's saying, this is that. And his claims could not be mistaken. It's clear what he was saying. And listen to how Peter concludes his sermon in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, he didn't seem overly concerned with how offensive those words would be. He didn't soft pedal the gospel or present a sort of domesticated version of it. It wasn't maybe what you would call politically correct. But it was true. And the reality is we shouldn't attempt to do those things either. We shouldn't try to soft pedal or tame the gospel so that it's palatable to us and soft and pleasant to our ears necessarily, as tempting as they, that might be. The reality is one of the most unloving things that we can do is not talk. There's some, here's the deal. There's some really terrifying things in the Bible. There are. And when we open them up and when we read them, our temptation is gonna wanna be to look away or to not talk about those terrifying things. But there's nothing more unloving that we could do. Because the reality is, while we have a hand in his death, we also need a shot at his redemption, a chance. Sinful people need a savior. That's the reality. I mean, Peter is, the, is a fantastic example of this message, the one who's proclaiming it. If you go back into the Gospel of Luke, some of the last words that Peter uttered were words of denial and rejection, words of failure turning his back on his savior. Peter is a total failure in that moment. And he goes from one who was completely denying Jesus, just in a matter of 50 days, to now one who is declaring the goodness of the grace that can only be found in Jesus. What's the difference? 
The difference is he had a life-changing encounter with the risen Christ and was convinced because of it that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and his spirit is now working and active in his life. Peter was a total failure. And now Jesus' words are true. He's the rock upon which he's building his church. This is a remarkable sermon, and it's even more remarkable when you consider who's preaching it. Acts 2 is a description of how God's blessing comes by the power of his spirit to his people through the vessel of Peter. But here's the deal. This is good news. In Acts 10, you know what we're going to discover? In Acts 2, God blesses his preaching. In Acts 10, do you know what God does? He corrects Peter's ethnocentric way of thinking, rebukes him. Because guess what he did? Didn't fully understand it. And why that's good news is because it reminds us that God, see, I think sometimes there's a temptation to think, I can't be used. I can't, I don't know all the right answers. Do you know the skeletons that are in my closet? And so we've become paralyzed and we don't participate in the mission of the church. But Peter is a wonderful reminder that God uses imperfectly developed people to carry out his mission. And it's a good reminder, too, that just because God uses some, someone doesn't mean everything that they do is right, right? Peter still makes a mistake, still messes up. It reminds us that every step we take in this world is a step of grace, fueled by his spirit. And that's exactly what you and I need. We are not totally unlike these people who are hearing these words. We are not totally unlike Peter. We are people who tend to reject him, keep God at a distance, turn our back to him. We are sinful people in desperate need of a savior. So what do we do about it? Verses 37 to 41. It's the same question that his audience was asking as Peter was drawing as his word was piercing their hearts and their, their, their focus was being fixed to, to Jesus. It's the same question they were asking. What do we do about it? Verse 37 says that they were cut to the heart as he preached. Peter's response was simple. Repent. Turn from your sins and believe in this Jesus. The Jesus that I just got done proclaiming about. Repent from your sins and believe in this Jesus, and you will be saved. When you do that, the forgiveness of Christ will come flooding into your life, and you will be transformed, much like Peter was. Completely transformed, a totally new creation, used by God to fulfill his mission. You no longer need to hang your head in shame because Jesus hung his body on the cross. You no need to, you do not any longer need to walk through this life weighed down by your sin and inability to get it together. Because Jesus bore that burden on his back to the grave. You no longer need to wonder does anyone accept me? Does anyone care about me? 
Does anyone want me? The eternal promise that God cares so much about you that he wants to give you his presence is evident here in the scripture. That he wants to be with you forever. Call you his beloved and precious son or daughter. God wants you. How do you know? Jesus. That's how I know. That's how you can know. Trust Jesus for salvation. What else do you do about it? It says be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Baptism, we know, is the public declaration of the faith that you profess in Christ, the visible representation of what has happened to you. Why repent and be baptized? Well, we know for a number of reasons. Jesus commands it. Jesus did it. Um, it. It declares to others what has happened to you. But even more than that, it represents that you belong to a new community of people. It, it, it enfolds you into the very family of God, a new family a people who are not unlike you, who are also weak, who are also sinful, who are also full of mess, imperfect people in need of a savior, yet precious citizens of the kingdom of God, used by God to continue to spread his blessing to the nations. Now this passage this week ultimately is an invitation into that community. What we'll see next week in Acts 2, 42 to 47 is a description of what that community looks like. Baptism is a enfolding into God's family. It gives us another symbol, which we are to do on a regular basis, as the Bible says, when we meet to celebrate and to remember the means by which we are a part of that family, <laughs> that it's not according to our work. It's not, according to, uh, it's not according to our ability to just pull ourselves together, but it's all a means of grace. And that symbol, again, visible, that we can see, that we can taste, that we can smell, is the Lord's Supper. And so, hopefully you guys have your elements we're gonna participate in that right now. This is a reminder of what it took for Christ to make us his people and his family. I'm gonna read this passage in.